Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, we are going to be over in Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1, or uh, you can follow along on the Version Bible app. And uh, while you're getting there, uh, to Exodus chapter 1, uh, last week, uh, Cody did a uh, wonderful job wrapping up our study in the book of Genesis, uh, talking about the life of Joseph. And uh, I'm just incredibly thankful uh, for him doing that. Uh, I know it was not an easy topic on Sunday to cover, uh, but uh, I appreciate him wrapping that up. But now, this morning, we move uh, from Genesis into Exodus. And Exodus, of course, is the uh, second of five in the Torah uh, the Pentateuch, as it's actually also called. Uh, and we find Exodus is written by Moses. It was written by Moses to the Israelites during 40 years spent in the wilderness. And we find ourselves starting in Exodus chapter 1. And what seems like it's just an introduction to the book and uh, an introduction to the events to take place after this uh, Exodus, of course, is titled after a huge event that takes place in the book of Exodus. And the book of Exodus is really an, a very, very important book. It's very important in the history of Scripture and really in this world because of these uh, key events that take place in Exodus. And so we're going to start this morning by looking at this introduction. And it, while it may seem like a recap, this first chapter, it's really actually very powerful. Exodus chapter 1 is actually very powerful because it is the backdrop for some things that really are timeless, are really things that we should uh, be thinking about and some things that we should be remembering. And so we're going to start in chapter 1. We're going to start with the first seven verses. And this is what it says. It says, These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Ishkar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now, Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful they multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. And so really, this starts right where Genesis leaves off. We get a recap of the nation of Israel and who all came into uh, Egypt with Jacob. And we see here that the descendants uh, who entered Egypt with Jacob numbered 70. Now, Genesis 46, 27, and Deuteronomy 10, 22 tell us that as well. Actually, in Acts and Stephen's uh, sermon, he mentions 75. So uh, we can say 70, we can say 75. It's not really a whole lot when you consider the nation of Egypt, yet uh, only 70 Israelites. It doesn't seem very much. We could fit 70 Israelites, 70, 75 Israelites in this room this morning. But this is actually really, really important, this, these first seven verses. 
Why, why is this important? Well, after Joseph and all of his brothers and that generation passed away, we see that the Israelites continue to be fruitful and multiply. They follow that command, be fruitful and multiply. And we see it, they, they multiply so much that the land is filled with them. And we see this as a continuing theme in our text this morning, over and over and over again. They are fruitful and they multiply over and over and over again. This is actually really, really important. And you might be thinking, why? Why do you keep saying that? Why is this really important? We start with 70, 75, either one. By the time we get to Exodus chapter 12, it tells us that there were about 600,000 Israelite men, or men who traveled through the Exodus. 70 to 75 to 600,000. That's a big jump in people, is it not? 70, 75, 600,000. That's just the men. This isn't including children or women. Some scholars speculate that there could have been an Israelite population in Egypt by the time of the Exodus of anywhere from two to two and a half million people. 70, 75 to two or two and a half million people. Do you see why this is important? If you don't, I'll, I'll tell you why this is very important. Genesis chapter 12, verses one through three. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. You see what God is doing in these first seven verses, really throughout the rest of our text, being fruitful and multiplied. God is building a nation. God is fulfilling his promise, starting a nation. And what is more, throughout everything we will see, not just in this passage, but as we go through the book of Exodus, we'll see that God is working. God is building a nation. Why is this important? I think it's important because it reminds us that God fulfills his promises. God fulfills his promises. God follows through on the promises that he makes, even in those times when it feels like maybe he doesn't. I mean, we struggle with this a little bit, do we not? That if we don't see things in tangible ways, then we feel like maybe God's not actually doing anything in our life. Like, if I don't see uh, wealth, if you know, if I'm not incredibly, incredibly healthy, like nothing wrong with me at all, if I don't see these tangible things in my life, is God actually fulfilling his promises that he's made? Is, is he actually working? By the way, health, wealth, not promised at all to us. We're promised what we need, not always the things that we want. And you see, sometimes his promises are fulfilled in the things that we don't see. The extra strength that God gives us in a difficult situation. Protection in the midst of a terrible storm in our life. Peace and comfort in the hard times. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said it like this, God does not give us everything we want, but he does fulfill his promises. Numbers reminds us in Numbers 23, 19, God is not human that he should lie. 
not a human being, that he should change his mind? Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? I mean, when God says he's going to do something, God does what he says he is going to do. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't lie. He doesn't say, you know what, forget it. I'm going to cancel my, my promise. No, he doesn't do that. And so we may be saying, okay, okay, I get it. Maybe he, doesn't f- he, he fulfills his promises. But I just wish that he would do it according to my time. I wish he would do it according to the way that I would like him to do it, right? I'd like him to give me the tangible things to show me that he's actually doing what he's promised. Well, I get it. I'm not always the most patient person in the world. When I order something off of Amazon, I'm checking my order constantly. Is it here? I'd rather go and if I want to buy it where I can have it right away, I don't wait for it to come in the mail. I get it. I'm not always the most patient person. And I would venture to guess that most of us are the same way. We're not always patient. We don't want to wait according to uh, where we live in a world of instant gratification, instant culture. We don't want to be patient. And I think scripture reminds us, though, what our mindset should be when it comes to God's promises. We need to be patient, first of all. We need to be patient when it feels like God is not moving according to our timetable, when God's not moving according to the way we want him to, when we see people around us and they have uh, such blessings and we're thinking, why are you taking so long, God? Psalm 37, 7 tells us, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways when they carry out their wicked schemes. We have to be patient and wait on him. And the other thing we have to do is we have to trust him. We have to trust him. We have to trust that he is doing what he says he is doing. We have to trust that he is going to do everything he says he is. We've got to trust that he is doing everything that he says he is doing. Because he tells us, I will never leave, I will never forsake you. He is with us at all times. We have to trust him. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 tells us that trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding and all your ways submit to him and he will make your path straight. And I think back to Abram or Abraham in Genesis 15. He's wondering, God, you said you were going to give me a nation and I don't even have any offspring. You said you were going to give me land and yet here I am wondering, God, when are you going to do what you say you are going to do? And what does God say to him? God reminds him, God reminds him, you're going to have offspring. They're going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky, the sand on the beach. They are going to be numerous. And your ancestors, they're going to receive that promised land. And guess what? They did. And here's the thing for us to remember, be encouraged by. Remember when man fell and sin entered into the world, God promised a savior. He promised a savior that a savior would come, and guess what? He did. Maybe not in the way they expected, but he did. God promised that we would receive the Holy Spirit. We can. Things don't always happen in our time or according to our plan, but we serve a God who fulfills the promises that he makes to us. And so we continue now in Exodus, verses 8 through 10. It says, And a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. 
Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So we see that time has passed, and now we have a new Pharaoh, a new king, a new person in charge of Egypt. And it says that to this Pharaoh, Joseph meant nothing. Joseph meant nothing. Why is, you know, well, this is important. This could mean one of two things. It could mean, one, that this new Pharaoh is actually, he didn't know who Joseph was, or he didn't know what the history of what had happened, how Joseph helped save Egypt. Maybe he just didn't know. But I don't think that's the case, as educated as the Egyptians were. No, I think it really was he did know, and he just chose to ignore the history. And I'll tell you why here in just a minute. But who was this Pharaoh? And scripture doesn't tell us who this Pharaoh is, but we could actually look back at history and get a sense of who this uh, Pharaoh possibly was. It said that this would have been around the 16th to 18th dynasty in Egyptian history, which would mean it could be one of three possible Pharaohs. It could have been Amos, who reigned as Pharaoh from 1550 to 1525 BC. It could have been Amenhotep the first reigned from 1525 to 1504 B.C. Matter of fact, a lot of people believe it was Amenhotep II, who was Pharaoh, who would later lose his son in the plague of the firstborn. Or it could have been Thutmose I, who reigned from 1504 to 1492 B.C. And scripture doesn't tell us, but I think it's interesting because we can look at the history of the Egyptian pharaohs and say, this is what was happening in scripture. It just proves to the historicity and the validity of scripture. But we see that to him, Joseph means nothing, but he has a concern. He has a concern, and his main concern is that he looks at the nation of the Israelites, and he sees that this is becoming a problem. They are becoming so numerous that they're filling the land. Remember, they started with 70 to 75, and now there's people all over the place, Israelites all over the place, and he's getting concerned. This is a horrible situation. We have to deal with them. They're becoming far too numerous. And we read this, and we think, why in the world is he so bent out of shape about the fact that there's so many Israelites? Well, it does say that if a war broke out, they could join the enemies, fight against us, and leave this country. But there's a little more to this story that history kind of fills us in on. So prior to this text in Exodus chapter 1, probably the 15th dynasty of the Egyptian Jews, there was a group of people known as the Hyksos tribe. Now, the Hyksos tribe, they were a group of Semitic foreigners in Egypt. Semitic meaning people who spoke Hebrew or Aramaic or Arabic. And they were foreigners in Egypt. And these group of, or this Hyksos, or Hyksos uh, group of people, these Semitic foreigners, they overtook the portion of Egypt, the lower portion, which included the Nile River Delta, and they controlled it from 1630 to 1530 BC. And eventually, they were ousted by the Egyptians. The Egyptians took back their land. And so, why is this Pharaoh so concerned about the numerous, or numerous Israelites? Well, 
the Israelites would have been a Semitic group. They would have been ones who spoke Hebrew. And now he sees that, man, we've already had to deal with the Semitic group once before. It's still fresh on their minds. And now this group of people, this Israelite group, they're growing so fast, so numerous, that we have to deal with them. We have to deal with them now or else they're going to become so big and they could end up joining our enemies, this tribe that we drove out a while ago. They could join with them. They could fight us and they could leave this country or this place. So we need to do something about this. And so he says we need to deal with them shrewdly. The word shrewdly, it's defined as a word that means to make clear. This idea of a clear understanding, they're going to deal with them in a way that leaves no doubt, you do not mess with Egypt. And so we're going to take care of this Israelite problem right now. And so what do they do? Well, verses 11 through 14, it tells us, it says, So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pitom and Ramses, as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in the brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. And all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. And so they decide we're going to make them slaves. We're going to take over these Israelites. We're going to make them slaves, and we're going to put slave masters in charge of them. They would have been the servants of Pharaoh who were in charge of managing the slaves and making sure that they were doing exactly what they were supposed to be doing, that they were working as hard as they were supposed to be. And it was hard, hard labor. Matter of fact, Deuteronomy chapter 420 describes the situation they were in. It says, but as for you, the Lord took you and brought you out of the iron smelting furnace out of Egypt to be the people of his inheritance as you now are. Iron smelting furnace. It was hard, hard labor. It was hard, hard work. And they had them build the store cities of Pitom and Ramses. These were cities where they kept supplies and they were actually south of the capital city of Egypt, which was Zoan. And you notice this, in the face of all of this, they're slaves, they're being mistreated, they're such, such hard labor. And look what it says. They continued to be fruitful and multiply. Nothing was going to stop this from happening. As they turn up the, the heat, they make them slaves, and they continue to grow, and they continue to multiply. And of course, how do you think the Egyptians handle this? They start to get frustrated. They despise them. And so they say, we're going to turn up the heat. We're going to turn up the suffering. And that's exactly what they do. They work them ruthlessly, without pity, without compassion. They made their lives bitter, and the labor was harsh. But it gets worse. It gets much worse. We move to verses 15 through 16. In verse 22, it says this. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose name were Shifra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. He'll say the same thing later. Pharaoh gave the same instruction later in verse 22. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Pharaoh takes his plans to the extreme now. He knows that, you know, I've made them slaves and they're still 
multiplying, they're still filling the land. And so now we're going to go even more extreme. And he goes to two of the Hebrew midwives, more on them in just a bit. And he tells them any Hebrew boys that are born are to be executed while the girls will be allowed to live. What he's doing, he's requesting that they commit what is called infanticide. Infanticide. The killing of infants. Sounds very similar to an event that we see later in Scripture. Matthew chapter 2, 16 through 18. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what he said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And so he turns up the heat. He makes them slaves. He increases their suffering. And now he's saying we have to kill the, the, any boys that are born must be executed. But guess what? Just like the story we just read from Matthew and like the story we see here in our text, God brings out of this a deliverer. But in the immediate part of our text, we see that over and over and over again, when Pharaoh tries to stop God, God has a plan. And we see God use two God-fearing women to stand for what is right and to protect those boys who are born. But even still, Pharaoh's going to keep trying. But you see, I think there's something very important in these verses that we need to notice. God's plans cannot be overcome. God's plans cannot be overcome. Look at this. They take them and they make them slaves. And what do they do? They multiply. And we see him go to the extreme. He increases their suffering. He says we're going to kill all the, all the boys that are born. But what happens? God steps in through two God-fearing women. And we see later they continue to multiply. Over and over and over again, it seems the enemy is constantly trying to put an end to God's plan. But guess what? The plans of God cannot be overcome. Job chapter 42, verse 2, and I love how the New Living Translation words this. It says, I know that you can do anything and no one can stop you. God can do anything, anything he wants. His plans are not able to be overcome. God can do anything, and no one can stop God. Psalm 33, 10 through 11, the Lord foils the plans of the nation. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples, but the plans of the Lord stand firm forever, the purposes of his heart through all generations. Proverbs 21, 30, there is no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can succeed against the Lord. Nothing can stop God. No one, nothing can stop God. And here's the thing. The truth is the enemy already knows he's lost. He already knows that he has lost. But what does he try to do? He's trying to take down as many people as possible with him by hitting that spot in our sinful nature that says rebel against God. Does, isn't that what the enemy likes to do? He's the deceiver. He tries to hit that part in our sinful nature that says rebel against God. You don't need anyone to tell you what to do. You don't need anybody to be in charge of you. Just do what you want to do. Don't listen to the word. Do, the, do whatever you want to do. You know, Cody brought it up. Is it worth it? 
Is it worth it? And that's a question the enemy likes to ask us too. Is it worth it? Is it worth giving up all these fun things? Is it worth giving up uh, the ability to do whatever you want to follow God? Is it really worth it? He tries to hit that button in our simple nature to say rebel against God. That's how man fell. That is what we see with Pharaoh. And over and over again throughout the history of Scripture, rebelling against God. And I think this is why Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5, 8, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around you like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. We need to be on guard, and we need to pay attention to the enemy around us. He's going to try to trip us up. He's going to try to make us stumble. He's going to try to hit that spot in us that says rebel against God. But we need to stop and think and remember that the plans of God cannot be overcome. No matter what the enemy tries to throw at us, God's plans cannot be overcome. And so we're going to go back to our text in verse 15. In verse 15 through 21 says, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because of the midwives, or because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. So let's go back to these two midwives, Shifra and Pua. They were not the only midwives. They were probably in charge of a group of midwives. And we see this thing that stands out about them. You know, what's interesting, outside of the descendants of Jacob, these are the only two people mentioned by name in this text. And we see that they feared God, and they did not do what Pharaoh asked of them. They had reverence, they had awe, they had respect for God rather than man. This is very big. This is a very big deal. It's what they're doing here. This is a very dangerous decision that they're making. Disobeying an order from a ruler? Guess what could have happened to them? Lost their lives. They could have been killed themselves. And of course, Pharaoh hears that these boys are surviving, and so he asks, what's going on? Why did you let these boys live? And here it could be simply that they tell a half-truth. What I mean by that is when they say Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, they are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive, they could have just been deciding to take their time getting to their house. It could have been simply a, you know, I'm not, we're not going to do this. And so, oh, man, by the time we got there, they were already born. What, what were we to do? They already probably took their kids and their boys and hid them like... What are we to do? It could have been a half-truth that maybe they took their time getting over to the house, or it could just be simply that they they were just fibbing a bit, telling Pharaoh a lie. You know, we've seen this done in Scripture, the story of Rahab and Joshua. Ah, they've already left, but if you hurry, you might be able to catch them. 
In 1 Samuel chapter 21, David pretended to be insane to get away. And see, what we do know here is that Pharaoh does not kill these midwives. Matter of fact, not only do they not lose their lives, guess what? They're blessed. Because not only do the nation, not only do the Israelites continue, again, as it says, to increase and became even more numerous. Notice that every time they try to do something, God's like, more of them, more of them, more of them. But not only more of them, it says that these midwives also had families of their own. God looked at them with favor and he gave them families of their own. You see, I think there's a very, very important lesson we learn from these two midwives. And that's simply this, we must fear God rather than man. We must fear God rather than man. These two midwives feared God and did what was right even in the face of danger. They could have lost their lives for what they had decided to do. But they decided, you know what, I'm going to stand for what is right. And even if I lose my life, I will do the right thing. And you see, the truth is we live in a world that says embrace everything embrace sin accept sin accept it live by it you know you you have to we talked about this a couple of weeks ago when we talked about what happens when god is removed from the picture but the question i would ask us this morning is do we truly fear god over man do we truly fear God over man? Are we, are we more about our reverence and awe and respect that we have for the Lord, that we're willing to do what's right? Or are we, in, are we afraid of men because, oh man, if I say the wrong thing, if I say the truth, they're going to be offended. If I say the truth, I'm going to hurt their feelings. Are we going to be afraid of what man will do to us? Or are we going to be in fear and reverence and awe and respect for God and do what is right? Matter of fact, Jesus tells us, you know, here's your option. He says in Matthew 10, 28, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. You're afraid of man? Don't be afraid of man. They may be able to kill the body, but they cannot kill your soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can kill both your body and your soul and send you to hell. God can do that. And I think it's a sad truth that so many Christians today compromise their convictions out of fear of what man will say or what man will do. I don't want to offend. I don't want to make them mad are the words that we often hear. But are we willing to say, I will fear God more than I fear man? One of my favorite books in scripture, as many of you know, I've said that we spent a long time actually going through it, is the book of Acts. I love the book of Acts. It's one of my favorites. And one of my favorite stories in the book of Acts comes in Acts chapter 5. And this is in Acts chapter 5, 17 through 32. It says, And the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people and when the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them. So they went back and reported, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priest were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. 
Then someone came and said, look, the men that you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. You can tell us all day what to do, but we're not going to listen to man over God. We're going to be obedient to God, and we're going to do what God has called us to do in the face of what might happen to us. And here's the question. Be honest. In their position, would we do the same thing? Would we? I mean, we may not be facing the possibility of death like we see in other parts of the world, but there have been several opportunities we probably have to stand up for what we know to be true, and out of fear of man, we turn the other way. And I get it. I've missed opportunities as well. I have things and that opportunities that I've had in the past that I'm thinking, man, I, I really, really missed an opportunity. A lot of conversations that I had that I could have said that, man, you need to hear this truth, but I chose not to. And moments I feared man rather than fearing God. We do the same thing so often. Oswald Chambers said it this way, the remarkable thing about God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. You fear everything else. And so that's the question. Do you fear God over man? Have you looked to the example of someone like Dietrich Bonhoeffer? I quoted him earlier, and maybe you've never heard the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor, and he was a noted anti-Nazi dissident during World War II. He was vocal about uh, what was happening with the Jews. He was very outspoken against the, the euthanasia, the persecution the Jews were facing, and it led to his arrest. And after a year and a half of imprisonment, he was executed by hanging in April of 1945. And I love this quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He says, not to speak is to speak, and not to act is to act. And the things that we choose not to say, the things that we choose not to do, show who, we're, who we fear. Do we fear God, or do we fear man? Hebrew reminds us that we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses who feared the Lord rather than man. And the world is going to tell us today, you need to accept, you need to accept these practices, you need to believe in these things that just aren't scriptural. Who are we going to choose to fear? We should choose to fear the Lord rather than man. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And here's the thing, reading through Exodus chapter 1, we see God doing these amazing things. 
we see that he is good in this passage. No matter what is happening to the Israelite peoples, God are still God is blessing them. God is working his plan. We see in this text that God is faithful in his promises. Every single promise he makes, he is faithful in his promises. Guess what? His plans cannot be overcome. As much as the enemy will try over and over and over again to defeat God, his plans cannot be overcome. And we know this morning that we can give God reverence, awe, respect. We can fear him rather than man because we know that we can put our faith, our trust, our hope in him because he has defeated the evil one. He has. He's defeated the evil one. Hebrews 2.14, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. God came into this world as man in the form of Jesus Christ and he lived, he died, he went to the cross and he rose again and in doing so in all of this he broke the power of the one who holds the power of death and that is the devil. And so maybe you're here this morning and you don't, maybe you've never feared God maybe you've never given your life to him and you want to do that this morning. If that's the case on your connect cards and the chairs around you, you can write that down. I'd love to talk with you or maybe pray with you about it today. Or maybe you're here this morning and you've been in that spot where you've been thinking, God, where are all these things? Where are these promises that you've made? Maybe we need to spend some time praying to say, hey, I'm going to trust you and I'm going to be patient. Maybe the enemy's been trying to get at us and maybe what we need to do is we need to go before God and say, hey, I've been letting him get at me. I've been letting him tempt me. I've been letting him try to bring me down. Maybe we just need to give that to God this morning. But man, he is faithful in his promises. His plans cannot be overcome. And just like Shifra and Pua, I'll get that name eventually, they do what's right. They fear God rather than man. Even though their life is at risk, they do the right thing. Are we willing to fear God and do what is right? And so if you're here this morning and you have a decision to make, I pray that you would do so as we stand and we sing.